you want to leave, now's the time. I think they get snacks. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Open your Bibles up to Matthew 3. Matthew chapter 3. For the last number of weeks, we've been looking at the various pieces that make up this passage, these first 12 verses in in Matthew chapter 3. We've been examining them in some level of detail. The reason we've done that is because we will not understand the the earth-shattering significance of, of John the Baptist and his coming unless... We get a grasp on the details of what it meant. But maybe, maybe as we've been looking at these pieces over the last few weeks, you, you're feeling a little like I do when I go to Ikea and, and purchase something and, and bring it home. And in big letters it's written on the box, some assembly required. You know what I'm talking about. So yeah, those are, those are terrifying words actually. Some assembly required. You know, speaking of Ikea, uh, I came across this, this uh, picture of um, what it might look like if Ikea and General Motors were to merge. So um, <laughs> I, thought th- I thought that was pretty good. Yeah. So if Ikea and General Motors were to merge together, that, that's what it would probably look like when you bought your car. Some assembly required, right? (laughs) So if if you've been lost these last few weeks or you feel like maybe you've just been grasping at things and haven't been able to quite pull it together, then um, it's my intention to put it together for you this morning. So we're back here in Matthew chapter 3, and we're still operating under the original outline that we put up there, which was John the Baptist looking at the man, his message, And his ministry. So John the Baptist, the man, his message, and his ministry. What I'll do is is just sort of review quickly the man and his ministry for you. Maybe maybe you haven't been here for all of the pieces leading up to this morning. And so I'll just briefly summarize them for you, but also direct you if you're looking for the details to go to the website and you can you can view those either in a video format or you can download an audio file and and listen to them then. We don't have time to go back through all of it again. But let's, let's start here with the man. Just to review, John the Baptist, the man. Chapter 3 of Matthew's Gospel, beginning in verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Verse 4. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt about his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. So this very unique, this very enigmatic, this very strange character called John, excuse me, John the Baptist. We noted in the past that that John himself was born of priestly descent. His father's name was Zacharias and his mother's name was Elizabeth and she was a relative of Jesus' mother Mary. So there was a kind of a family tie there. At John's birth, his father prophesied about John that he would be a great prophet who would bring the knowledge of salvation to God's people. 
So John was uniquely set apart even from his conception. He prepared for his prophetic ministry by an extended period of time in the wilderness of Judea where he was separated off from the rest of society. That wilderness of Judea area we noted is east of Jerusalem and and north of the Dead Sea. And so there in the solitude, this, this enigmatic character, this man of God prepared for the ministry that God would bring to him. He lived a very simple life. He, he lived a very stern sort of life, reminiscent of the Old Testament prophets, and in particular the prophet um, Elijah, who lived about 900 years before John. And you note here in, in verse 4, his clothing, his attire, camel's hair, a leather belt. These are the garments of the prophet and his food, a very simple a very austere kind of diet. So this was a very unique man by the name of John. And he came to his people with a message. God had placed upon him a prophetic call with a very simple message that he was to deliver to the ancient people of Israel. And when he came forward to deliver that that message, it was like a sandstorm roaring out of the desert. He erupted upon the scene. You see it in verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came. He came. And and what characterized his coming was his preaching or his proclamation here in verse 1. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. It was a simple message. It was a strong message. It was a a message that was essentially an, an ethical demand, that is to repent, based upon an eschatological reason, that is that the kingdom of heaven is now at hand. Because of the circumstances, the kingdom of heaven now being at hand, the people must repent. And this repentance was to be both personal and individual, as well as national and corporate. It was a repentance from personal sin, as well as national sin. It was a promise of salvation, both individually and nationally. It was the promise nationally of the establishment of Messiah's kingdom, the throwing off of the yoke of foreign oppression. It was the promise individually of deliverance from the bondage of sin itself. It was a simple message. It was a message of turning to God. Repent, he says, verse 2. Turn to God. Turn to God intellectually. Recognize your God for who He is. Recognize your sin for what it is. And then be broken of heart. So turn to Him intellectually. Turn to Him emotionally as you sense the deepness of your transgression. Turn to him volitionally. That is, turn to him with your will. Make the 180 turn from moving away from God to moving towards God. Intellectually, emotionally, volitionally, prepare yourself for Messiah's kingdom. A kingdom that we noted over the last few weeks is a, is a kingdom that is characterized in the Old Testament by, by beauty, by wonder, by glory. 
A kingdom that, that occupies, indeed, a, a significant portion of Old Testament revelation. That this is not some small matter, but indeed is, to a large degree, the focus of the writing prophets themselves. As they wrote to a nation that, that was on the verge of being swept away in captivity of the judgment of God, and then in their exile to offer them hope of a future day, a better day. A kingdom that touches life at its, at its deepest level, both spiritually and physically. A kingdom prepared for God's people. A kingdom in which you and I, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, will someday reign with Him. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12. Someday we will reign in this kingdom. This was John's message. Simple, powerful, direct, confrontational, without compromise or negotiation. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And that leads us to his ministry, the third aspect to look at together. The ministry of this man. What had he been commanded of God to do? What characterized his prophetic life? Essentially, it was a ministry of preparation. We could say it that way. This man had been given a ministry of preparation. And that preparation essentially boiled down to, to two realities, two things. It was baptism and it was warning. He had a ministry of baptism and a ministry of warning. Let's look at the ministry of baptism first. Verses 5 and 6. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, Matthew tells us, and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. What Matthew indicates for us here is that at least initially John was a wildly popular character. There were multitudes, large crowds that would come to see him to come to be baptized by him. And that's understandable. This man stands or stood in the line of the great Old Testament prophets. There had been a long time since there had been a prophet in Israel. Many centuries had gone by. The, the Old Testament canon had closed with Malachi, and for 400 years God had been silent, no prophet in Israel. And then this one bursts on the scene like, like a desert sandstorm. He arrives and he, he's even dressed in this old prophetic garb. And he has a message that is so strong and so uncompromising. If for no other reason than the sideshow, people flocked to see him. Let's go out. Let's travel the 20 miles from Jerusalem out to the, to the Jordan River area. Let's go see this man named John. And so they came. And it says here they came in, in vast numbers, not only from Jerusalem, but, but all over Judea and from the district around the Jordan River. And, and beyond that, we know they even came from as far north as Galilee. John could gather a crowd. We know this, by the way, because many of Jesus' disciples were first disciples of John, and they were residents themselves of Galilee. 
So this man had a strong attraction, a, a powerful pull upon the nation. And when people arrived, he would confront them. He would put that bony prophetic finger, as it were, right in the center of their chest. And he would say to them, you must repent. You must repent. You must be baptized in, in preparation for Messiah. Verse 3, you must make ready the way of the Lord. You must make his path straight. You must straighten out your lives and be ready. For the king is at hand. This baptizing ministry, by the way, became so such a part of who John was that, it, that he became named by it, right? He was not born John the Baptist. His, his last name is not the Baptist. Nor did he found the Baptist church, by the way. I just thought you maybe want to know that too. He is John the Baptizer. He is John the Baptizer. He was, he was so aligned and so characterized by this ministry of baptism that it became how he became known. It was that by which people referred to him, John the Baptizer. Now, water. Water is a, is a natural element of physical cleaning, isn't it? what we use to clean the dirt off our bodies externally. And, and thus, it, it really provides a perfect symbol for internal cleansing as well. And so, water, baptisms, washings were nothing new to the Jewish people. This was not something new in that sense. They're, they were very familiar with baptism. They were very familiar with washings. They've been instructed out of the Old Testament with regard to these things. There were various prescribed washings in the Old Testament. For example, Leviticus chapters 11 through 15 talk about ritual defilement, ceremonial defilement, Levitical defilement, if you will. And it prescribes various washings by which a person become cleansed and come back into fellowship of the people of God. Numbers chapter 19, it speaks of the, of the, the ceremony of the red heifer in which there was a, a washing prescribed using the ashes of a, of a red heifer to bring about ceremonial cleansing. And water was always a part of it. So John's ministry was, was not new in this sense. It was not something outrageous. The Jewish people knew about baptisms. They knew about washings. Furthermore, the Jewish People required Gentiles who were entering into the covenant of Israel to themselves become converts of the law. And in order to do that, there were, there were three things that they had to perform in their own lives. They had to become circumcised. Assuming they were male, there was a requirement of circumcision. Beyond that, they had to offer a sacrifice. And third, they had to be baptized. They had to be baptized. This is Gentile baptism. This is proselyte baptism. Again, very well known among the, the Jewish people. Now, proselyte baptism or, or Gentile baptism, the, the ceremony would, would go something like this. The convert themselves would stand in the water, sometimes up to their neck. And, the, and they would listen as the law was being recited to them. After the law had been recited, after hearing it, they would promise to keep it. So they would make a promise to keep the law that they had just heard. 
And then there would be a, a benedictory prayer that would be offered over them. And at that point, they would then baptize themselves. They would immerse themselves in the water. And they would do that in, in order to, to symbolize their cleansing from their defilement, from their pollution of being Gentiles and pagans. So this water symbolizes the washing away of their paganism, of their moral defilement, of their pollution, as it were. So now comes John. Now comes John. And it's against this background of, of ceremonial washings, of, of baptisms, of proselytes, that John now arrives on the scene. And what he does is, is he transforms those existing religious rituals into something new. Something new. For example, rather than baptize themselves, now the people need to be baptized by him. They need to humble their heart. They need to subject themselves to being baptized by another. This is completely different than anything that they had known up to this point. And what it indicates is, is that God is doing something new. God is now doing something new where he has, he has sent this prophet to now baptize people. So rather than self-baptize, they are now being baptized. One commentator says, and I think he's right, that, that this no doubt lies behind the, the religious leadership of Israel when they question him, as recorded in John chapter 1 and verse 25, where they say to him, Why then are you baptizing? If you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. The idea being is, if you're not, if you're not the Messiah, or, or you're not the prophet Elijah, or if you're not the prophet to come, what are you doing with this new ceremony of baptism? Where you take it upon yourself. By what authority do you take it upon yourself to baptize us? But even stronger than that, John now treats the sons of Abraham, the sons of Abraham, like they are polluted Gentiles. He says to them that, that they must be purified in order to enter Messiah's kingdom. Verse 6, they must confess their sins. They must confess their sins and they must submit to his baptism. They must become, as it were, Gentiles. Now, this is, this is hard for us to try to get a full understanding of the impact of this, but you've got to remember, we're talking to the proud nation of Israel. These are, the, these are the people who have the law of God, right? These are the people to whom the divine oracles came. These are the children from the loins of Abraham, and they have his covenant, these are the ones who are trusting in their own external righteousness. And now John is saying to them, you are no better off before God than the Gentiles themselves. Repent and be baptized. It's a wonder, by the way, that it was popular, that message initially, huh? Don't you think? But his popularity was somewhat short-lived. But beyond his baptizing ministry, God gave him a ministry of warning. God gave him a ministry of warning. Now, the life expectancy of an Old Testament prophet wasn't particularly good. Nor were their working conditions all that desirable. 
You remember Jeremiah. He spent a time in a, in a cistern full of mud, left there to starve and die. You remember the prophet Ezekiel. God said to him, Ezekiel, your wife is going to die, and when she dies, you may not mourn her. Or the prophet Isaiah, who tradition comes to us and says that he was sawn in two by the evil king Manasseh. To be a prophet of God, to be his messenger, to deliver his message of warning, it generally puts one on a collision course with authorities, both civil and religious. It's to, it's to oppose the general flow and direction of society. It's to speak those things that nobody wants to hear. It's to be the one to, to come to the banquet and, and start throwing your dinner rolls, to start the food fight. It's not all that wonderful a job. But here is John. Here is John when he arrives. And he arrives to warn the people. Verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I wonder if you preached like that, what would happen? Probably wouldn't take long before most people would be gone, would it? I mean, talk about a message of confrontation. These are the religious leadership of the nation. These are the spiritual creme of the cream of the crop, creme de la creme, right? These are the ones who have it together. The Sadducees, they're, they're the ones that control the temple system the, through which the priesthood comes. The Pharisees, these are the ones who are set apart. These are separate. These are the, the ones that are the holy men. And they arrive. And John's not polite at all. He's not polite at all. You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee the wrath to come? Now, it's not hard to believe that John's baptizing ministry and his uncompromising message would eventually lift them on the radar screen of the religious authorities, right? It wouldn't take long before they would figure out, hey, where is everybody going? And so they come too. Now, there's some question in terms of Greek here, whether they were coming, as it says in the NASB, for baptism, meaning they were coming themselves to be baptized, or as the, the NIV translates it, it, it may be they were coming to where he was baptizing. So I'll let you Greek scholars make your own decisions. It may be they were coming actually to, to be baptized, and maybe they were just coming to where he was baptizing. But in a sense, it doesn't matter because his response is the same. He doesn't say, hey, welcome, glad you're here, you know. He says to them, you, you group of snakes, you pile of snakes. Who warns you to flee the wrath to come? Your motives are impure. Your lives are hypocritical. Why are you here? What is it that is motivating you to get away from that which you know is coming? The wrath to come. I mean, it was a well-established 
biblical reality that, that Messiah's kingdom is preceded by a time of wrath. The Old Testament is exceedingly clear on these things. Before the kingdom comes is a time of wrath. And so if the kingdom is, is at hand, it is close by in the presence of the king, then certainly the wrath that must precede it is even closer at hand. And so John is, is just saying to them, listen, okay, you, you know the wrath must be here, and so, so who told you? Who told you? Now, generally speaking, the, the Jews believe that, that the wrath would come upon the Gentile nations. They were the ones to get the wrath. And it was their Abrahamic lineage, right? We're, we're children of Abraham. We're sons of Abraham. We will escape the wrath to come. But John, he's, he's right in keeping Right in keeping with those Old Testament prophets. And he, he says, listen. Yes, wrath will come upon the nations of this world. The Gentiles will suffer the wrath of God. But, but don't think you will escape. Let judgment begin in the household of God, Peter says. Go back a, a book in your Bible to Malachi. We should be careful. We should be careful for wishing for the wrath of God. Malachi chapter 3. Chapter 3, the first five verses. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. And he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earners in his wages, the widow and the orphan and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Chapter 4 and verse 1. For behold, the day is coming burning like a furnace and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be as chaff and the day that is coming will set them ablaze says the Lord of hosts so that it will leave them neither root nor branch the wrath to come John says to these religious authorities you you brood of vipers you bundle of snakes who warned you to flee? Can't help but remember back 15 years ago or so when myself and a couple of other elders from Foothill, we traveled down to the jungles of Brazil to visit uh, Dan Hubiar, Dan and Lillian, when they lived down there. And as part of our time there and living in the village, we, we went with them on a, on a hike to another village that was even more remote. And as we were walking along, and I remember Dan, I'll just never forget this. He was telling us how the natives would, would do this. Because we're, we're, we're walking along, and I see this big field. And I said, are there snakes out in that field? 
And Dan said, oh, sure, there's snakes out there. And I said, well, what do you do? Because there's all this tall grass. And, and I'm thinking, I hate snakes, by the way. And I'm thinking, walking through this grass with snakes everywhere. And he said, well, it's simple. They just burn it. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, before they'll cross the field, they'll just light it on fire. And they'll just, uh, they'll just let the wind fan the flames and they'll completely burn the field down. And that drives all the snakes out of the field. And then they walk across it. And I thought, well, that's brilliant. <laughs> but I thought they were like, you know, primitive and in touch with, with, their, with their earth and, and all of that sort of thing. I mean, they just burn it. That's how they dealt with it. Who warns you, snakes? Who warns you to flee from the burning field, as it were? Verse 8. Bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't just come take a bath. Bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. John's warning them. He's warning them that that down at the individual level, descent from Abraham will do you no good. The fact that that you have Abraham as your forefather... Cuts no ice with God. It doesn't place you in any closer position to your God. In fact, he goes on to say that that even the stones have a better chance of becoming God's true people. Again, you need to remember how you're going to receive this message. John is a very discourteous preacher. So is Jesus, by the way. I was thinking about preaching a message sometime about the rudeness of Jesus. He just, um, many times, social conventions and customs were sort of dispensed with to speak directly to the point. That's what he says to them here. He says to them, you know what? God can raise children out of inanimate objects. The power lies with him and not with you. It is all of his doing and none of yours. Don't suppose, verse 9... That you can say to yourselves, I have Abraham as my father. It will do you no good. Young people, do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, I grew up in a Christian home. Do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, my mother and father follow Christ. Do not suppose that you can say, I read my Bible. For none of these, none of these will enable you to escape the wrath to come. There is nothing but God's own mercy to call out upon Him. Humble your heart. Throw yourself on the mercy of the Savior. Repent of your sin and and turn and flee to the cross of Jesus Christ. It is your only hope. Your only hope. Verse 10, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The axe is already there. It's not the axe is coming. Look at the metaphor. 
The axe is already there. It's, it's at the root of the trees. Judgment is at hand. Judgment is at hand. This is the strongest possible warning. He uses this metaphor of an axe chopping down a tree to describe God's judgment. And, and that's a common metaphor, by the way, in the Old Testament. The ancient prophets themselves use it on more than one occasion to speak of the wrath of God as, a, as an axe chopping down a tree. John says that, that you, Israel, you, sinners, you are even now with the axe lying right at the root of your tree. One blow, and down it comes. One blow, and it's over. Turn, run, flee. There is no time to wait. There is no time to wait. Notice it will destroy both trunk and root. It's not just that the tree will be felled. It will be completely destroyed, completely uprooted. There will be not a trace left. They must demonstrate their repentance. They must bring forth fruit, keeping with their repentance. They must confess their sin. They must submit to proselyte baptism. They must bring forth the fruit of a changed life. Write this down. God is not impressed by family trees. He wants fruit trees. God is not impressed by family trees. He wants fruit trees. Fruit trees. Any tree that does not bear good fruit. What fruit? Verse 8. Fruit in keeping with repentance will be entirely destroyed. Entirely destroyed. He goes on. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is, is mightier than I. He is the strong one, and I am not fit to remove his sandal. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So strong metaphors of judgment. It was the duty of a slave when his master came home to loosen the thongs of his sandal, to, to untie his sandal so it could be removed from his feet and his feet could be washed. It was the lowest duty of a slave. It was so menial a task. In fact, it was, it was prohibited for a Hebrew slave. It was too degrading for a Hebrew slave to do. John says, in the, in the presence of this coming one, the presence of the Messiah, I am unworthy even to perform the most menial of tasks. Verse 11. 
My call for, for baptism and repentance is, is a critical call. You, you must comply. But, but even that compared to the strong one, the one who is mightier than I, is nothing. For He will bring the Spirit. Verse 11, He will bring the Spirit. When this one comes, He will pour out His Spirit on this world. Joel chapter 2, verse 28, prophesies the pouring out of the Spirit. He will pour out His, his Spirit on this world. And, and depending on how one responds to the Spirit's call, will determine whether the fire that comes with that baptism, verse 11, is a, is a baptism of purification or a baptism of eternal judgment. When the Spirit comes, He will separate, He will sift the world. John chapter 12, the unforgivable sin. You remember? The unpardonable sin. The failure to respond properly to the Spirit's witness to Christ results in the eternal condemnation, judgment, and fire. God is a holy God. He's a holy God. Evil and sin cannot exist in His presence. He will consume it. He is a purifying fire. He is a terrifying fire. Verse 12, his winnowing fork is, is in his hand. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He's even now separating. The ancients, the way they would, would harvest their grain, they would cut the cut the stalks of grain and they would gather them together and then they would, they would drive animals across them to break it down. It would separate the grain from the, from the stalks, from the chaff. It would break it loose, but it would all be in one big pile still. So they would take what's called a winnowing fork. It was, it was kind of like a pitchfork. It was made of wood. And they would scoop a small pile and throw it up in the air. I think I have a picture of it here somewhere. What would happen is the, the heavier grain falls to the ground and the, and, the, and the breeze carries the lighter chaff away. And so it, it separates the two. The chaff is then gathered up and burned. This is, a, this is a common daily occurrence. This is a metaphor for which the people are very, very familiar. And, and John drives home his point here. It says that Messiah's imminent coming will separate us. It will divide humanity. It is good news for those who are his own. That is the grain. It is the worst possible news for those who aren't. The chaff. It will bring terror. It will bring destruction. My friends, the, the return of Jesus Christ is a, is a wonderful, glorious thing to look forward to. But at the same time, it is a return of judgment. Sifting. Even today, the, the New Testament witnesses, it witnesses to the coming of Messiah. And it says when, when Messiah comes, that he will sift and separate. It calls upon us 
to, to respond in repentance. To be ready for His return. Paul's words to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17. Paul says there in verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. Because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Today is the day. Today is the day. We cannot rely on our, on our backgrounds, our heritage. We can only rely on Christ. Christ alone. It's our only hope. What kind of people are you? What kind of people are you? When Messiah returns and he looks for fruit, what will he find? Later in Matthew's gospel, he, he looks for figs on a tree. Do you remember? In the Passion Week. He can't find them and he curses the tree. When Christ, with his piercing eyes, examines our lives, what will he find? What will he find? This is a message of sifting. It's a message of utmost seriousness. This is a message of redemption or condemnation. What will it be? When Messiah comes, what will it be? Let's pray. Our Father, how culturally different John's message is. How unlike the preaching of our day. Even by our standards, O oh Lord, we would consider it rude and offensive. No niceties. No pleasantries. No small talk. Simply strong, stern declaration that the time is at hand. The Lord, You sent Him to bring that message to Your people because You loved them. Because You desired their repentance. You, you desired them to turn from their sin. You take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. You wanted them to repent and return and, and to be healed. Oh Lord, you take no pleasure in the death of the wicked today. It is your desire, it is your, your heart's longing that men would repent and, and embrace the cross of Jesus Christ. It is our message of hope. But it is also a message of judgment. It is the good news that Christ died for sinners. And that by faith in Him, they will be forgiven. And yet it is 
also a message of condemnation and judgment. For those who will refuse Jesus Christ, there lies no hope. Our Father, can it be that even now you're sifting and sorting? O Lord, may you enable us to think seriously about these things and to order our lives accordingly. We say we believe in the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it it could happen at any moment. And yet so often by our attitudes and our actions, we betray what we say we believe. We act as though He will not come. We act as though we have plenty of time to sort things out. Plenty of time to make our lives count for Christ. O Lord, we focus on the grace of God so much that at times we forget the wrath of God. Our God is a consuming fire. He's a holy God. O Lord, may you drive these truths into our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.